Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome to Borderlines from the Irish Times with me, Freya McClements. And me, Mary Minahan. This podcast is about changing identities north and south with one presenter on either side of the border chatting to a guest who gets it. And our guest today really does get it because she's Jan Carson, an award-winning writer and community arts facilitator based in Belfast. Her latest novel, The Raptures, was published last month to widespread acclaim, I think it's fair to say. Jan, you're the literary woman of the moment and congratulations on the raptures and also the fire starters and the last resort and much, much more. Everything, basically. (laughs) (laughs) The raptures was such a great story and no spoilers here. But what was of particular interest to me was that it really put a spotlight on the evangelical community, the Protestant community in Northern Ireland. It's not a community that's often the focus of literary work, is it? And I think it was inspired in part by your own upbringing. Yeah, it's very much the world that I grew up in um, and quite a, a closed world in some ways. So um, I think one of the things that's difficult about that community is it's very hard to write um, in any way critically from within it. You know, as soon as you begin to ask questions or cast aspersions, you very much move to the edge of it. And that's perhaps why we don't have an awful lot of literature or art which explores that community. So it's something I've always wanted to write, but I wanted to write in a nuanced way. And I tried to write this book about 10 years ago and it came out quite bitter. Um, And I've I've said, uh, you know, I don't feel I had to grow up as a writer. I feel like I had to grow up as a person before I was ready to write The Raptors the way it is. It's a kind of balanced overview of that world. And what was the reaction to it from within that community? It's still ongoing, Freya. Oh, watch this space. Yeah, well, I'm going back to Bellamina to do an event next week. So that will be interesting because it'll be the first time I'm back on home turf. So I'll probably get some face to face reactions. But I've actually have had quite a lot of emails and messages and um, even some letters sent to to, um, the bookstore in Belfast, which is a bit strange, (laughs) but lovely. Um, of people just very grateful to see their experience explored and talked about. And also a lot of people who are carrying a lot of hurt. Um, you know, it, it's not an experience that's easy to live with. And so there are folks who need a space to talk about it. So I had always hoped this book might start a conversation. And I will say on the other side of things, I've had a lot of ministers and clergy read it. And I think that's quite brave. And I'm I'm grateful for that. And most of them have responded with, there's a lot for us to learn here. It's a hard read in places, but I want to start thinking about that. So, so far, fingers crossed, really positive. That's really interesting. And I wonder, would you tell us a bit about what it's like growing up in that sort of evangelical Protestant atmosphere? Because it's not something that I think that all our listeners will be Mm. familiar with, but it's not an uncommon experience in in parts of of Northern Ireland. And I think, I mean, when Edwin Putz became very briefly leader of the DUP last year, there was a lot of talk about how he believed in creationism, that the earth was only 6,000 years old, and, you know, some of his other sort of of, um, beliefs in gay conversion therapy, for example. And 
again, I'm repeating myself here, but it's within that that world, that's not uncommon. Mm. Just explain that for us a little bit. Yeah, I think it's a really important point you make, Freya, because so many of our leaders from a unionist background grew up in that world. And I think to understand their politics, you have to understand their theology as well. You know, I think particularly pertinent is their theology in how they approach women. And that's very much explored in the Raptors. You know, as, as a young woman, I could see there was no real road to leadership for me, um, certainly not within a religious setting. Um, and that kind of runs through a lot of the theology that, you know, women are not on an equal footing with men. And you can very quickly see how that has informed the political thinking around women's rights as well. Um, I guess I could go in through all of the nitpicky theology of what it was like to grow up there and some of those things you've mentioned around creationism and attitudes to sexuality and gender and women's roles. Yeah, they're very much things I grew up with. But I think the two big things that people maybe don't understand are the, the fear culture. So there is a tremendous um, kind of um, idea of fear installed in young people very, very early on that the world is something to be afraid of. Um, and I think it boils down to this idea of, of losing control. So it's where the fear of alcohol comes from, the fear of dancing, the fear of the arts. You know, you might go to the theatre and encounter some degenerates and all it'll spiral out of control from there. So that fear thing, I think, is in a lot of, of us who grew up in that community. And I think the other thing is separatism. Um, I grew up incredibly ignorant of um, the wider idea of what it meant to be Irish. You know, um, went to a Protestant girls' grammar school and got no Irish history. Um, have no understanding of Irish mythology or folklore. Um, and that leaves you kind of on, on the back foot when it comes to, you know, being a 42 year old woman in a very complex place. I've had to relearn all of that. So there was a real sense of keeping ourselves away from mm. others and um, very insular. And you get that very much in Hannah's experience in the rapture. She's an 11 year old girl who doesn't really know anything what's happening about three miles outside of her front door. Um, so yeah, it's a it's a very interesting world to explore, and I think there are parallels. I've talked to some folks who grew up quite conservative, rural Catholic, and they'll they can pick out the parallels quite quickly. So um, that's encouraging as well to see folks being able to empathise. Yeah, I could really relate to it in that sense. Like when we were going to school in Derry, like the writing was literally on the wall that, you know, yeah. H block should be smashed, the Brits should be out, touts would be shot, that sort of thing. And round some corners then the message was different. It was a loyalist message. And my father was from Portrush. The writing on the wall there was completely different. It was kind of almost a religious graffiti. Yeah, it would yeah. be quite normal to see the wages of sin is death painted up on the wall in beautiful script. But I think you really reflect that in the raptures that it was a it's a very, very normal way of living. And it's just mm. the evangelical experience is part of everyday life. They they don't really remark on it because it's what they're so used mm. to. And I think a thing that that's, I find shocking since the book came out is a number of people have responded to this world like it's a cult. like yeah. This is a niche experience. It is not a niche experience in Northern Ireland. There are tens of thousands of people, possibly more, who grew up. And particularly when you go back, you know, 20, 30, 40 years to my parents' generation, every kid in East Belfast would have gone to an evangelical Protestant Sunday school. A lot of them came up through the girls' brigade and the boys' brigade. That influence is heavy and we're seeing it played out now in the political leadership and 
attitudes that people are struggling with. And, you know, I live in East Belfast and, and what's going on right outside my door? We've had a real spate of really horrible anti-migrant um, graffiti going up in the last few days. And some of that comes right back to that fear culture. You know, we talk a lot about the legacy of trauma in Northern Ireland and it's it's often talked about in terms of the, you know, the violence and, and the politics. There's a legacy of trauma in terms of the religion as well, of unpicking all of the bad thinking that's been put into people. And that sometimes doesn't come out until two or three generations down down the, the line. So, yeah, I, I think there's a lot there that you can't just dispel the religious element, even though most of us don't belong to a church or practice anymore. It's still there in the kind of DNA of Northern Ireland. How did you start that unpicking? I think that's a really great word because I'm, I, I'm you know, listening to you and trying to understand what it was like growing up in that. And it, it must have been, I imagine it must have been a really challenging process for, for you even to start mm. thinking in a way that was different from the people around you. How did you start about that unpicking and, and what did it lead to for you? Well, to start with, some some teacher gave me a copy of Wuthering Heights and that was just a disaster. <laughs> Closely followed <laughs> that was by Tennessee Williams. <laughs> um, I think there's, there's a scene in The Raptors where Hannah talks about the top of her brain coming off because she's experienced something that's outside of the kind of strict doctrine she's grown up with and it be, makes her begin to rethink everything in light of that. And I will say for most of us who's come through this experience, it's a kind of um, trying to stick a square peg into a round hole for a long time. You know, you experience art, you experience people who are different from you. You have your first drink and you don't go buck mad <laughs> and it's quite nice. You know, you um, you meet some wonderful people who are from an LGBTQ plus background and they're not the scary monsters that they've been um, made to, to seem. They're actually wonderful people and they have wonderful loving relationships. And you think, hold on, like, how does that fit? <laughs> and so I think I'm very glad that I was around a lot of people who were wise and mature and very graceful, I think, because they were willing to sit with me and my difference for a long time. A very a very formative experience for me was I did a, a master's in theology in St Andrews, which is an, a, quite a liberal um theological experience and my cohort of the dozen people I studied with were every kind of walk of life and experience and we sat in our difference for two years and learned how to communicate and listen to each other and that was that actually taught me a lot about you know what I wanted to bring into my community arts practice when I came back to Northern Ireland learning to sit with difference and learning to listen um, and I'm still you know I don't want to be incredibly negative. I still have a faith. I still think it's really important and precious that we preserve that and that folks who want to practice faith and find something helpful and um, uplifting and even useful for our society. I've just finished an essay for the Centre Culturel in, in, in Paris about what we lose when we lose organised religion. I think there's been a a huge thing in Ireland in the last wee while of get rid of it all. It's all bad and negative and and there's that was necessary to get the skeletons out of the closet. But there's some wonderful things that churches and religious institutions have done over the years as well and continue to do. Like our food bank culture, we would not have that network of food banks without church involvement and how they've looked after our children. I know they've done awful things to children too 
but there has been a network of kind of childcare and provision and mums and toddlers and so yeah I want to I want it to be fair about it as well. I think you really are in the raptures and that's one thing I love about the book is you certainly don't trash the community from which you sprang you know there's a lot of spiky humour in it but it's extremely sympathetic and I suppose the point of it is that most of the personalities are benign and you spoke a little bit about the woman's experience. Um, I suppose, you know, for the woman in the book, if you have a good man in your life, that's great. Mm-hmm. And for the children of, of the couple as well. But I suppose where it gets problematic is where, you know, where you stray beyond the benign character and, and yeah. things get a little bit darker. But yeah, I think you really did emphasize the kind of the positive aspects of the community as well. And that's that probably explains why you got that positive response, as you said, from ministers and so on and yeah. so on, even though I'm sure it does challenge them very deeply to read your work. Yeah, well, it's always just interesting because I am a woman <laughs> and I am saying these things and I, I have a, a platform now to talk and be listened to. Um, and even that in itself quite often grates against some of some of the attitudes that the, these I'm going to be honest they're all men I haven't had any um no that's a lie I've had one female minister get in touch but it's mostly male leaders that are reading and responding um I thought about this a lot Mary when I was writing it and I looked at a lot of books where conservative religious institutions were challenged in their attitudes towards women so things like Miriam Toa's Women Talking which looks at the Mennonite community and mm. um, Naomi Alderman's Disobedience which looks at the Hasidic Jewish community um, and I realised that I wanted to give my female characters this kind of aspiring um, sense of like they're moving towards autonomy and they're challenging the status quo and that's actually impossible within these these kind of confines that you're writing. They wouldn't be believable characters if they suddenly lost the head and started shouting and demanding to be made <laughs> a minister or whatever. Yeah. Um, you have to keep within the boundaries of what's real. But I also wanted to aspire young women who were going to read this. Like The Raptures is the book that I really needed to read whenever I was about 14 or 15. And I want them to read it and go like, there is some hope like there is, there are avenues that are opening up. You can raise your voice and challenge and ask questions. Um, but I had to do that within the confines of not losing um, the suspension of disbelief yes. with my readers. <laughs> yeah. And I, I wonder how your own, you know, again, kind of coming back to your own journey, but talking about, about yourself as, as a woman and being brought up in that community and where you are now, you know, I wonder, did, did your own thinking about yourself and your understanding of yourself as a, as a woman how did that change um I think once again um I kind of looked at role models and I was very fortunate to come across a couple of women who were doing and being what I wanted to be and were modeling it in a way that didn't come from a place of just trying to cause harm or anger for the sake of it and um, there was, I don't use this word li- lightly, but there was a righteousness about what they were doing, genuinely asking the questions of, but why is it okay to teach the children and the women, but not the adults? Like, why can't I teach men? I mean, there's a big question um, around even mission work in terms of these evangelical Protestant communities. You know, we'll send a female missionary to Africa to teach whoever they come across, but we won't let them teach white men. There's really, and I was watching these women ask those questions with with respect, but also not scared to go there. 
and thinking, I can do that. I can raise my voice and do that. Um, and it, it's probably got easier. I think that world is, it's lightened up a little bit. Um, I'm scared at the minute because honestly, I think post-Brexit and in the last two years, there are little sections of it that have dug their heels in and moved backwards and become more fundamental. I think we were moving slowly forwards in a conversation. There, we're back to that thing of fear where so much change and so much questions about the future of, of Northern Ireland has led that conservative fundamental chapter to kind of just go, ah, I'm going to stick my heels in and grab onto what I know. So I don't know whether those doors have closed now a little for conversation, but I, I did think we were moving forwards a wee bit for a while there. It's interesting you, you talk about that conversation because there is a sort of a narrative about um, you know, border polls or a United Ireland and about about that conversation. And, and there's the question about whether or not unionism or, or people from a unionist background in general, I suppose, should should in, engage with those conversations. And it's really interesting from what you're saying there that the sense actually has been that, that no, that it, it's almost that fear again. Is that your experience of that? Because, because it's being said that unionism needs to engage with this conversation that, that it, it makes it harder and I, I, do you think that people from your background for example should be engaging in that conversation or is that just a, yeah. a step too far? I think, yeah. I think Freya there's a lot going on in that question, I'll unpick it a wee tiny yes. bit um, <laughs> so I, I think from the unionist community and I sort of straddle two words, I've got the kind of your rural evangelical Protestant community that I nip home to every so often and then a very kind of politicised idea of unionism which is going on outside my door here in East Belfast and I think that community they're not being listened to a lot they're being talked at and um, there are sometimes there's a lot of assumptions being made you know about how they will react and what Mm. what they will what they think about things with like a proper engagement you know back to that thing of like you know listening and sitting in your difference what people say might annoy you immensely it might make you furious but they still have a right to be listened to and quite often they find in doing years of community arts that if you listen really hard you can hear the real hurt and the real fear under it it might come out in a torrent of like I don't like this and I hate these people and I do this and underneath you can hear I'm really scared I I don't know what this thing is that you're talking about or everything's going to change and that's terrifying so I think there's that in this community. The community that I grew up in was mostly apolitical. So it was a um, a world so fearful of the world that politics was a dirty thing. And, um, you know, keep your distance. So, you know, even people not voting, um, not being involved in politics at all. There's a line in the raptures where they talk about watching the news to see what's happened during the troubles, to pray about it, not to get involved in it. You leave that kind of stuff to God and you don't meddle with it. But what I have seen in a a lot of the other churches around that um, area is much more of a return to politics being preached from the pulpit. So I'm hearing from my friends and the people I know who still belong to those churches that we're moving back to those kind of Paisley days of a minister standing up and telling you how to vote or what you think about things. And that's really dangerous because it's not asking your congregants to think for themselves, to um, even, you know, to use religious terms, to pray about it and meditate on your decision. It's just being told, go out and do this. 
because that's what, what the right thing is. So that scares me a wee bit that, that, that someone would be doing the thinking for people. Um, and quite often when you ask folks, and I can hear it sometimes in you know the, the articles and things that I'm reading that you guys are interviewing people on the street, you know, they're asked, what do you think about this? And they'll say, oh, I'm against whatever it is. Why? I'm just against it. And they can't articulate the reasoning behind it. Um, a lot of us who grew up in those evangelical circles, we grew on, up under that kind of teaching of you just do what you're told. Don't, don't worry about why you're doing it. Just do what you're told. One person that you pay some tribute to in the book and your acknowledgements is Lyra McKee. And uh, it was interesting because last week's guest on Borderlines, uh, Seamus O'Reilly, also paid a tribute yeah. to, described her as the late, great Lyra McKee. And I, I think the young people in this novel are uh, of that sort of peace process babies generation. Um, do you still have hope for that generation? Or do you think that was a kind of a dream that died off with Lyra McKee? Um, that's a great question and I'm, I'm so grateful I was able to include a few of her words and Sarah has been really gracious in letting me do that. Um, I think a couple of things there, Mary. The the kids uh, in, in the Raptors, there's a group called the Dead Kids and they have um, gone on to a place, a kind of limbo place that's like Northern Ireland but isn't Northern Ireland, it's the future. And they have these great hopes when they arrive there that they're going to make it like a utopia. And it very quickly descends into the same old kind of factions and fights. And I really, I was reading a lot of Lyra's work and thinking about just the incredible pressure that we've put on that kind of generation of ceasefire kids. They've inherited a bunch of problems that they didn't make. And we're expecting them to be the future of Northern Ireland and to fix everything. Um, and it's a lovely utopian idea, but that it hasn't been modelled to them. It hasn't. Be, it's not something that they've seen in their parents or the um, the worlds that they've grown up in. And how can we expect them to create something beautiful and peaceful? We're doing the same with climate activism as well. We're you know we're giving all of these sixteen, seventeen year old kids an enormous problem and going, "You're the future. You're going to fix this." So um, yeah, and and when when you ask about hope. I get asked this a lot, are you hopeful about Northern Ireland? I'm so hopeful when I look at, at, at not just that generation, but the incredible leadership that we have in unofficial roles in Northern Ireland. So those young people who are leading in terms of kind of gender rights and women's rights and climate activism, the community leaders that have been plugging away for decades you know, really putting themselves on the line for their communities. Um, I get really hopeful when I look at them. And then when I look at what we have in actual official leadership, I get desperately unhopeful um, because they're the people who can change the legislation. They're the people who can produce budgets that actually make a difference in communities. And they're mostly dinosaurs. I don't want to white whitewash across the board because we do have some wonderful, inspiring politicians I'm just not sure that we can hold out long enough to get the generation that's coming up into positions where they can change the legislation. So I, I sit somewhere between wild hope and desperation. Um, okay. uh, depends what day you're asking me. If I've just been with a bunch of teenagers, I'm usually like, oh, this place is great. It's going to be brilliant. Um, if I've just been around a lot of politicians, it, it might not be the same attitude. <laughs> 
You're listening to Borderlines. We'll continue our conversation with Jan Carson after this short break. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome back to Borderlines. Today, we're talking to the author, Jan Carson. Jan, will you talk a little bit about your community arts work? You've spent, I think, a good two decades working in community arts uh, in Northern Ireland. I suppose maybe it's not uh, as or it doesn't have the image of being as glamorous as being a successful writer, but I'm sure it has contributed a great deal to your work. And what have have you learned from it? Well, I will say, Mary, that the cake and the scones that come with community arts are much, much better quality than anything you ever get as an author. So <laughs> that's often what drives me back to community arts. Is this the point to get into the tray bake? <laughs> no, we're not going no, there. We, we save that for the end. <laughs> um, yeah, I've been, I've been a community arts um, facilitator. It's terrifying. I counted up it since 1999. So it's 23 years. It doesn't feel like it. <laughs> Um, and I kind of got in by accident, just, you know, someone said, would you go and do a writing workshop with some women in a, it was a community group um, on the Ormo Road. And I was just hooked. I, I was hooked for a number of reasons. I think I could see the power of what art can do in those communities. You know, art should never be a utilitarian thing that we use just to achieve something. But it has this sneaky way of doing that anyway. So you would go in and create a space where people who you know might have previously been reticent about sharing their story or seeing the value in it were allowed to talk and share and be validated. And that's incredibly powerful for someone whose story has been suppressed for a long time. We would learn um, ideas of, of being together with different backgrounds, different stories and seeing the value in each of those. We'd learn um, kind of the, the things that brought us together that were simil- similar more than our difference. So a lot of my work recently has been with people living with dementia. And I found very, very much that an issue like that, where your loved one is going through this traumatic experience, that trumps all your party politics <laughs> and all of your attitudes. You're just desperate to find someone else who's been through that that experience and to find a community there. So I've absolutely loved that on a kind of um, professional level. On a personal level, I've just grown so much. Like I couldn't be writing what I'm writing unless I'm listening and engaging to the, with the community around me. I've also just been really accepted. You know, there, there's been so many times I've come in as this ignorant, wee, naive, rural Protestant, not really knowing what half the things people were talking about were and being able to go so what exactly is a First Communion? And 
what, what do you lot do at awake? And to be really graciously told stories and then asked questions about my community. And I, I didn't have that growing up. Like, as I've explained, I never got a chance to ask those questions. So that was lovely. Um, and then just finally, there's something really grounding about being off in this highfalutin world of doing book festivals and fancy things. And then coming back to like the Falls Road or Turf Lodge or the Short Strand or wherever you're working and somebody's just like, Hi, what, what is it you write? No, never heard of you. <laughs> it is just, it is brilliant. It keeps your feet on the ground. Bringing you back down to Earth with the band. Hi. But um, <laughs> you do stray outside your own community in your writing a little bit, don't you? I mean, you do have a character, Sean, in The Raptures, who's really well drawn. And we spoke to Rosemary Jenkinson about this. How is it scary to uh, try to write the other side, in inverted commas? Or is it something you enjoy? And is that, did you draw on your community work for that? Yeah, I think definitely community work came into Sean. And I've met a few characters like Sean over the years, but... I guess I would never, ever set out to write an entire novel or a kind of um, have a, my main protagonist be from any kind of background that I'm not very familiar with. So um, I tend, this is a wee secret, but I tend to just write myself all the time. So you might be getting a like 80 year old male version of me or a 10 year old girl. <laughs> But I also think it's not natural to have a cast of characters as big as a novel without having some diversity in it. And mm. obviously, um, you know, Sean's from a, a more nationalist background, but there are also characters in the, the Raptors who are from different ethnic backgrounds, different cultural experiences. Um, and I'm always I'm always nosy and looking for wee snippets in the people I meet that I could feed into work. Um, I just think you have to be really careful. Like I always say, you know, you come at those experiences that you've not had personally with research and with respect um, and always passing them past people who are from those backgrounds just to check you haven't said something harmful. But I don't think that writers should be terrified of going there. There's, you know, there's been a lot of fear recently of, you know, stick to what you know, only write what you have a right to write, which is daft because we, we, you know, we work in the land of imagination with made up stuff. So we have to be able to be free to do that. Um, and I, I certainly don't want to, you know, continuously write books about a 42 year old single woman who lives in a two up, two down. It would be very, very dull for everyone, including me. <laughs> It's interesting you talk about diversity and about the, the different backgrounds and different sort of sexual orientations of all the characters and, and the people you meet, because I think there's often a narrative that Northern Ireland is very binary, that it's Catholic and Protestant, that it's Unionist and Nationalist, and that's it. And it isn't like that. No, and it, I mean, this book set in 1993. It wasn't even like that in 1993. You know, I was going through my primary school class, which was quite small, but, you know, we had a, um, a second generation Italian immigrant whose dad was the ice cream man in the town. And <laughs> we had a friend who was Chinese and her her parents, as was quite common back then, ran the Chinese takeaway in the village. There were folks who were had parents who were working at the hospital who were from, you know, India and Pakistan and all sorts of different places. So there were those stories that were slightly different from what people expect. Now, that's not to say that Northern Ireland back in then wasn't mm. predominantly white. It really was. But, 
you know, as writers, we're always interested in the stories and the peripheries of things. Those are those ones that buck the norm and are slightly, um, you know, not the stories we've heard before are always intriguing. So I'm always looking out for who is that person that's a little, you know, has a little bit of a unique take on what was going on here. And I particularly in the Raptors, I particularly enjoyed writing um, the Lungs or the Chinese family in it. And we get their take on the 12th. Um, yeah. And the 12th has been written so many times in literature, but it's usually from within. And it was really fun to be able to write from a perspective of somebody who could ask questions about why are they doing this and what, what does this mean? And it's a bit odd because it is a bit odd. Um, but without cynicism, it's the same with a child narrator. A child narrator can go to places and ask questions that an adult can't. Um, I was talking, I did a podcast yesterday about Belfast, um, the Kenneth Branagh movie. And, you know, obviously he's seeing that experience through the eyes of, I think, Buddy's 10. And I think he missed a trick a little bit because I don't think Buddy asks enough of those difficult questions. He starts off by saying, is it our side that caused this damage or is it their side? And the, the um, Jamie Dornan character says, oh, there is no us in them. Now we need it, Buddy, to keep asking those kind of awkward, difficult questions. A child narrator can do that with no cynicism, no kind of underlying context. They're just asking because they don't understand. Mm. Um, and that's why, you know, you get them in, you know, films like Mickey Bow and Me, um, Patty Clark, Ha Ha Ha, Roddy Doyle's work. They're getting in under the text with something difficult and stirring it up. Um, so, yeah, if you see a writer using a child narrator, they're usually cheating a wee bit. <laughs> Maybe just being more creative, look at it that way. Yeah. I wonder how, how your own sort of identity has, has changed, or perhaps it hasn't, but I, I'm wondering how, how you describe yourself and how you think of yourself now. Are you a Northern Irish writer, an Irish writer, a British writer? Are you a Belfast writer, a Ballymena writer? Are you... A, a rural writer, a city writer. I mean, there's a huge number of labels. A European writer, because you 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 do a lot of work in Europe as well. You know, how, how do you see yourself? Um, Freya, I always just try to be as much as I can. Um, I think there is an incredible lot to be to be gained from having plural identities. I don't understand the fear of having to be one thing and nothing else, because to me that seems less. And, you know, you, the rest of you can't see this because you're only hearing it. But if you could, you know, you take and see my house, it's definitely a more is rather than less thing. There's stuff, <laughs> stuff piled everywhere. More, uh, more books I, for starters. I mean, I, the, the, I, the scene behind you is full of and books. quite a lot of like Bob Dylan by the look of it there. Yeah, I did my <laughs> master's on Bob Dylan. So there that's that corner. Um, like I aspire to be a minimalist, but I'll never get there. Um, but I love being lots of things. I love being all of those labels that you have, have given me there. I've got my two passports. I mean, on a very basic level, this is awful and I'm never going to get asked back again, but when I go to a European city, I'll call up the British Council and the Irish Embassy and tell them I'm there. And you usually get two free dinners instead <laughs> of one. So what what is bad Top about tip. that? <laughs> Can I ask you about the passport? Like, when did you apply for your Irish passport? And was it a big leap or was it just... A practical thing to do? It's funny, it came up in my Facebook memories there this week. So it's three years since I got it. And it didn't, it, at the time, it felt like a really practical thing because, you know, as Freya mentioned, I do travel around Europe a lot. 
um, and I didn't want to be standing in queues and um, I just thought I'll, I'll have both. It's, it's also, it's a great talking point whenever I'm doing skills work in Europe. I just get out my two passports and I say, right, let's talk about what it means to be Northern Irish. And it's a great visual thing for the kids. Um, but it was really emotional. I wasn't prepared for when I came home and it was lying on the welcome mat um, beside my letterbox. Like I did cry and I, I still haven't unpicked what that was, but whether it was a good kind of emotion of I'm crying because I am more things now or that it felt, you know, I'm the first person in my family to have an Irish passport. Definitely. You know, if you go back two years, my granddad was an orange man. Um, and nobody else in the family has an Irish passport. So I did feel a wee bit like, oh, I wonder, have I betrayed something? There was a lot of mix. You know, when I say lots of identity, lots of emotion as well. <laughs> but it was clearly something that was prompted by Brexit. That's why you applied. Um, it's very strange for me because Brexit kicked off right at the same time as my writing career <laughs> kicked off. So I can, like, I did 12 European translations now and I did the year before um, lockdown, I did about 25 European countries. I don't even know if there are 25 countries in Europe. But I became this European writer and I couldn't tell, is it because they actually like my book or because everyone yes. wants me to talk about <laughs> Brexit? <laughs> and the border. I still don't know. <laughs> so it, it was a practical thing, but probably bizarrely provoked by a combination of Brexit and um, winning the European Prize for Literature, I felt like you can't really be the Irish laureate for the European Prize without an Irish passport. And when you are described or if you are described solely as an Irish writer, does that seem accurate to you or does it seem a bit reductive? It's not enough? Your identity is broader than that? Um I think this is a phrase I'm using a lot with a lot of things at the minute. I think it's a good starting conversation. So when someone describes me as an Irish writer, I'm like, I'm not offended. It's not untrue. But can we keep talking about that? Because there's more going on there. Mm. Um, bizarrely, I don't even know what this means. But if someone was to describe me as a British writer, I don't. I think I would have much more of a curling up, like you've reduced me a bit purely because all my mates and my community is in with the Irish writing community like and I am I just can't wait to get back to the festivals and see everybody but that I've always felt culturally Irish I think since I, I first started writing because I write into such an incredible history and tradition of just amazing creatives and those are the writers that I grew up with loving and it's an honour to say you're an Irish writer. It really is. So I don't know what that says about my politics a wee bit if me curls up if I get um, labelled as a British writer. It says something, doesn't it, about, about the complexity of all of this. And, and I think for a writer, that's where the interest yeah. is, isn't it? You, you know, you have to be interested in complex things and in contradictory things. And, and I'm just thinking back to some of what you said about you know, the, the community arts work you, you've done and how that changed your perspectives and, and broadened your perspectives. And it's it's all about this conversation. I mean, I wonder what you think about the role of all of that in peace and reconciliation. And I suppose what needs to be done with that in Northern Ireland? Is that something that, sh that should be 
invested mm-hmm. in more, should be focused on more? Well, obviously, yes. If you're asking me, should there be more money for the arts in Northern <laughs> Ireland? It's a, a two thumbs up for me. Yeah. I think there's a chronic misunderstanding of what the arts and particularly community arts has done in Northern Ireland over the last 20 odd years. And I, I don't think it's in any of those hard targets that they, you know, the politicians are want to roll out to justify spending. I think it's in that art does fu- something fundamental to how our brains are wired. So, you know, a lot of us didn't grow up with art, didn't grow up going to the theatre or reading books or going to art galleries. And that part of our brain hasn't been switched on. And that is the part that learns how to have an opinion and also hold someone else's opinion in equal respect. You know, you can look at a painting and go, well, I like it, but I can see you don't, or I think it's awful, but I can see some of you appreciate it. Art also teaches us kind of nuance that there could be multiple meanings to one text. It teaches us things like how to, to talk. I mean, that's a really basic fundamental thing. But I think a lot of Northern Irish people don't know how to articulate their feelings, their emotions, their experiences. Um, it teaches valid- us validity. You know, when there's so many really key pieces of art that I love and they're about championing the small person's story, the kind of forgotten story that Ken Loach has made a kind of career out of it. And when you see that, you begin to think, well, maybe my story is of worth as well. Now, once you have all of those skills in your head, it's a lot easier to dialogue. It's a lot easier to live in difference. So, you know, I got asked two days ago by a teacher, you know, what 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 do we need to do as teachers with the next generation? What should we be teaching them? And I just said, like, just teach them how to listen well and to respect each other's opinions. And I think art is one of the best vehicles for doing that. Um, you don't do that in sport. Sport is about picking a team and doggedly standing by it. Mm. Art is about living in nuance and, and kind of grey areas. And a, a million other things as well. It's also about joy and having an outlet <laughs> and all of that stuff. But I don't think our politicians quite realise just how much heavy lifting the arts have done here in the last wee while. And also, you've got that, we, we started out with talking about the, the theology behind some of our politicians. They need that bad theology about how dangerous and scary art is unpicked so they can be able to see how powerful it is. Jan, can I ask you, the title of our podcast is, of course, Borderlines. When you were growing up in Ballymena, was it uh, crossing the border a part of your life at all? Did you have much contact with the Republic? Yeah, my uncle lives in Cavan, so we used to go backwards and forwards with um, my, my beloved Nana, who I absolutely love, my wee Nana, and she would put us in our pyjamas and take us down. And um, she always bought a, brought, <laughs> brought a packet of fruit pastels for the soldiers on the <laughs> on the border. <laughs> and I'm sure they no, couldn't eat them. They probably just put them straight in the bin. But it's one of my childhood <laughs> memories of thinking... Um, you know, waking up sort of bleary eyed and there'd be like an, a, um, an English voice speaking through the window and, and Nana going, and there's a wee packet of fruit pastel, son. <laughs> so um, <laughs> I do have that memory. And then I also, my, my Nana was a rep. She um, she drove around the shop selling products for um, uh, the for Cairns Chickens in Bellamina. And she spent a lot of time going around the borders. And I would, when I was little or off school for the day, I would sometimes go with her. 
And I never understood until recently why she had um, she had a little walkie-talkie in her car to keep phoning back. And I now realise that she was joking in and up out around the border, like mm. a single woman in her 60s. She was just checking in to let them know that she was okay all the time. But as a child, this is where we're back to the child narrator thing. I didn't have a baldy why my nana in a mini metro need a walkie-talkie like <laughs> to sell chicken fillets. Um, so I, I'm actually, I've, I've, I'm working on a short story about it at the minute of being the child in the car, going backwards and forwards, trying to, to border there. I was just going to say, it sounds like ideal material for yeah. a story, doesn't it? One for always, we, we had, had to ask about borders um, at the very end. I think the things really struck me out of everything that, that we've we've talked about is it, just how often you keep talking about about difference but acceptance of difference that phrase we sat on our difference we, we live our difference i think that's really something to to take away from this and i think all the episodes of of borderlines um so far mary um because this is this is the last episode in this mm-hmm. season of borderlines but it feels like that's a good place to leave it doesn't it Yes, indeed. And Jan, I suppose what you've been talking about is uh, gifting children the ability to communicate. I so often think failure to communicate is what causes offence, mm. even when it's not meant. And if we could teach that better, we'd be in a much better place. So thank you very much, uh, Jan, for joining us. As Freya says, this is the last episode in this series of Borderlines. From me, Freya McClements. And me, Mary Minahan, and our producer, Declan Conlon. Thank you for listening and goodbye for now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.